What were the, what were the skies like when you were young? They went on forever. When I, we lived in Arizona, and the skies always had little fluffy clouds in them, and uh, they were long and clear. There were lots of stars at night. And uh, when it would rain, it, they were beautiful, the most beautiful skies, as a matter of fact. Uh, the sunsets were purple and red and yellow and on fire. The clouds would catch the colors British electronic music group The Orb with the little fluffy clouds. Yes, clouds can inspire songs of joy. They can stir menacing symphonies of doom blocking out the sun. On a drought-stricken farm, I guess a cloud, a single cloud, can be a hymn of hope. Richard Hamblin has thought a lot about how we've made art and music from the clouds. He's the author of Clouds, Nature and Culture, which is actually his third book about clouds, so you know he really, really likes them. He's a lecturer in creative writing at Burbeck University of London, and he joins you and me now from that city. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Look out the window. What's it like in London at the moment? It's quite cloudy. It's it's pretty grey. There's some strategic cumulus cloud up there but it's there's a sun behind it it's going to burn them off and it's going to be a, a fairly clear afternoon i think that sounds lovely how did you become a cloud man how does this happen to a person <laughs> well i i remember very clearly as a child the first time i went up in an airplane and it was quite a cloudy day and i i remember worrying that what's going to happen when we hit this what appeared to be a solid white or gray layer above us and then we went through it and for a few minutes, we were actually inside a cloud. And then, you know, the way the plane just lifts up through the cloud and suddenly you're in this blue zone, this azure zone. The, the sunlight is incredibly bright. All of the colors are different. The light inside the, the airplane cabin is just incredibly, kind of, you know, it, it's bright and clear. And, and it, that, to me, was a, a transfiguring moment. To pass through the clouds was elementally changing for me. I always uh, but, feel as though you could get out of the plane and walk. Yeah, I, I wouldn't recommend that no. for, so for a number of reasons. But one of them is that clouds won't support you. They are, you know, they, they are, they're made of water droplets and ice crystals, but they won't support uh, any kind of human weight. But they're not floating. All clouds are slowly descending, very, very slowly under the, under the influence of gravity. But other physical forces are keeping them up, you know, uplift. And also the droplets are very, very, very small. So it they are actually some of them are smaller than air molecules so there's all kinds of physical processes going on in there but don't try to stand on one it's my recommendation <laughs> all right i won't ask them to open the door next time i'm at 30,000 feet so that's how they've exercised the minds of small boys um as you were once what about the minds of philosophers because in the book you cover quite a few philosophers just give us a taste of the reflections that have been stirred in the minds of philosophers when mm. they gaze up at the clouds yeah, well, for many centuries, people did not know anything about clouds because they are so far away. We can't, you can't grasp them. I think it's one of the fundamental qualities of a cloud is that it's far away from you. So that already is mysterious. You can't, unlike other forms of natural science, you can't take a sample of a cloud unless you're catching water in a rain gauge, but that's just a bucket of water in the end. Clouds are distant from us, yet, you know, they pass overhead. They're constantly changing. So they are mysterious in lots of ways. And philosophers like uh, René Descartes, a great uh, early 17th century French philosopher, thought that if you could philosophize about clouds, because they were so ungraspable, so changing, so such a challenge to our, our senses and our understanding, if you could philosophize about them, 
then you could philosophize about anything. So they became a kind of gold standard of difficulty, of graspability. And that's that's been a, a theme in philosophy, but also in literature, poetry, art, music. The ungraspability of clouds, you know, you, you can look at them, but you can't touch them. They also seem ungraspable because they're constantly changing, they're constantly in flux. But along comes Luke Howard in 1802, and he manages to spot the continuities that are there and gives us the names that we still use. Tell us about Luke. Yeah, well, he, he was, at that time, he was uh, about 30 years old. He was a professional pharmacist. He'd had a long, unhappy apprenticeship as a pharmacist in England. He was a Quaker. And significantly, he joined an amateur scientific debating club uh, in London because Quakers at the time were forbidden from attending British universities. So they set up their own uh, dissenting university. And the rule at the club was that every week someone had to give uh, a lecture or pay a fine. Uh, and his joke was that you know he'd, ra- he'd rather talk about clouds and pay a fine. But the truth was that he'd been fascinated by clouds for a long time, as had a lot of other people. And there had been attempts to name clouds before, but the main challenge, as, as you've suggested, is the, young, is the fact that they change all the time. So, it's, so if you can name a cloud, the problem is that, it, that 10 minutes later it's another cloud. So naming them, it's not like naming a bird or a plant, which don't change every 10 minutes. You know, the average lifespan of a cloud is 10 minutes uh, before it's changed into another one. So what he managed to do was come up with a series of names, but also a series of intermediate or compound names so you could track the changes as the clouds change. So, so for example, the three main families of cloud that he named, the cirrus clouds, the high wispy ones, cumulus clouds, the big fluffy fat ones, and stratus clouds, the long, thin, low ones, a bit like fog. And the significance of his naming system was that something like a high cirrus cloud that descended and spread into a layer, you could then call cirrostratus, stratus meaning layer. So you can see that there's is a kind of um, a kind of you know like almost like Lego blocks. You you have a, a series of names and you can move them around one into the other, and that was that was the clever part. Anyone else who tried to name clouds before hadn't uh, factored in their their, mute, their changeability. And Luke Howard's success was that he created a naming system that you could take parts of the name and move them around, uh, a bit like blocks of Lego, and make other names which, uh, which mirror the, the, the changeability of clouds themselves. And now, as we'll see, uh, there are a lot of artists and composers and so on who've been inspired by clouds, but the 18th century German thinker Goethe was actually inspired by Luke Howard's classification system. He was. I mean, he was quite elderly at this time, and he'd been working on something he called morphology, the study of forms. And he was fascinated by the way that nothing in nature ever stays still. You know, he had this famous quote, there is never a moment in nature where nothing can be said to be happening. Nature is a dynamic system or series of systems. He loved Luke Howard's classification. It, It was translated into German in 1815. And Goethe read it in German and he saw immediately that this was a a new kind of natural history classification because it was a dynamic classification. It wasn't a grid. It wasn't, you know, an attempt to pin butterflies onto a board. This This was allowing clouds to carry on moving, to have their elemental freedom. And he saw this, he called it a missing, a missing link, a missing thread between scientific accuracy and creative freedom. And he wrote to Howard 
and um, said, please tell me about how you came up with this idea. And Luke Howard, I mean, Goethe was one of the most famous people in the world at that time, probably the, the great intellectual colossus of Europe. And Luke Howard, who was a very obscure, unknown pharmacist, thought this was a hoax from one of his friends and refused to answer the letter at first until he was persuaded that it really was Goethe writing to you. It's uh, it's quite extraordinary. I and mean, I can't think of a of a, an equivalent today. But it would be, you know, as though Al Gore wrote you a letter saying, please tell me about your views on the environment. Well, Al, I'd say I quite like to walk <laughs> on clouds. <laughs> <laughs> so, so as you say, Goethe is, well, he doesn't just write to Luke Howard, he also writes a poem about Howard's yeah. classification system. He gets rhapsodic about it. He, he wasn't the only one. I mean, at the same time, Percy Shelley wrote his famous poem, The Cloud. And what's interesting is that both the Goethe poem and the Shelley poem take Luke Howard's sevenfold, at the time, sevenfold clown classification and use that as the organising principle of the poem. And in both these poems, it is, as it were, a single cloud that transforms from one kind of cloud, from a stratus cloud, into another kind of cloud, cumulus cloud, uh, and so on. And so what's interesting is that it wasn't just that Luke Howard's cloud names, which are very beautiful. I mean, I think that cumulonimbus is one of the most beautiful words in the language. But it wasn't just that they were responding to the beauty of the science. They were responding to the science itself, the ideas of the science. Shelley's line, I change but I cannot die, in his poem The Cloud, was very insightful because that's exactly what Luke Howard was arguing, that a cloud doesn't die, it just changes into another cloud. Even when it evaporates and disappears completely, the water vapour is still there, latent in the atmosphere, waiting to become another cloud. So this, you know, you can see why Goethe would be very excited by this idea, that nature is this is this huge global system. It's not just one thing that you can point to. It's, a, it's an entire series of systems all doing amazing things in the atmosphere. I want to thank you, if only because um, you persuaded me to go on reading Shelley's poem, because the last time I looked at it, which is when I was a student, I stopped after <laughs> line one because I thought line one was so terrible. I bring fresh showers for the thirsting flowers. Yeah, I thought, I oh, please. But it gets better. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> it really does get better, yeah. Uh, this is Books and Arts on RN. I'm Michael Cathcart. talking about clouds and literature and music with author Richard Hamblin and this music performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra conducted by Michael Tilson Thomas is by the French composer Claude Debussy and it's called Clouds. You can feel them swirling and changing there. So Richard, what was the inspiration for this? Well, according to Debussy, um, he was remembering an evening walk in Paris one evening in the 1880s. I mean, that that piece, Clouds, or Nuage, as he called them in French, came out in the beginning of the 20th century. But um, he'd, he'd remembered a particular image of clouds, as he says, slowly passing through a moonless sky over a bridge in Paris. A number of clouds, not too heavy, not too light, he took this cloud memory and shaped it into this eight-minute uh, symphonic piece, which uh, starts, as, as you've uh, you just, just played, with a slow-moving chordal theme followed by another theme. And again, like we were talking about with, with the poetry, 
this is music that changes and moves from mood to mood to you know from theme to theme you've got this kind of progress of of tones tinged with with sadness and with with kind of heaviness of memory which then take on life and you get this kind of beautifully sort of symbolic picture of uh, of clouds in memory and then clouds in reality it's it's absolutely beautiful now, there's another way in which clouds can be harnessed for music. Uh, tell me about this project. It's called Sky Ear. Let's, let's hear the sound first mm. and then you can speak to it. The weird thing, Richard, is I know there are a lot of sound engineers who work at the ABC who'd find that much more interesting than the music we were listening to before. They really get turned on by this stuff. (laughs) Me, I'm a Debussy man. But nevertheless, tell us what's going on there. (laughs) That is amazing. I I went to this, uh, I suppose we call it a launch of this uh, extraordinary thing called Sky Ear, designed by a British uh, architect called Usman Haq. He's launched it in a few places. This was in Greenwich Park in South London. And it's it's a series of LEDs and sensors are put inside a whole set of balloons and then filled with uh, helium gas, so they rise up into the atmosphere. And after it's it's, uh, risen a certain height into the atmosphere, everybody there is given a special mobile phone that's, uh, that's connected to the sensors inside the balloons. Uh, so, uh, but what you're hearing and what you've just played, and, and uh, I remember it very clearly, it was, a, it was a horrible noise, but a fascinating noise. What you're hearing is the Hertzian atmosphere. All of the mobile phone signals, everything you can think of, like garage doors, anything with, you know, you know those garage remote doors, anything that's got a remote signal gathers in this particular space in the atmosphere and passes this kind of invisible atmospheric layer of digital sound which um, gathers in this in this area and what the this um, ingenious artist did is create this this piece of kit that can connect you to this uh, this invisible hertzian weather passing overhead that we're usually un, you know completely unaware of and then to listen to that, that is the sound of the atmosphere, Michael. That's, that's what's going on above us. That's what the it's music of the spheres really that sounds is. like. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's what we've done. Yeah. <laughs> now, listen, uh, uh, track this down. Just look for Sky Ear. Look for a video of Sky Ear because yeah, there's a fantastic yeah. video there of them, of them blowing up all these balloons and sending all those <laughs> mobile phones up into, the, up into the upper atmosphere. Let's talk about <laughs> pop music and rock and roll. How have they looked at clouds? Uh, well, you know, Mick Jagger told the world to get off of his cloud he in did. 1965. Yeah. I mean, that you played the orb at the beginning of the of the program. And that, funnily enough, when I was a student, that, that was number one in Britain, that track. I mean, you know, clouds and weather have, have really been represented in, in music for a long time, obviously. And pop music is is no different. You know, the, the great Kate Bush in her, um, her album Hounds of Love, which was recorded in Ireland, and anyone who's been to Ireland will be familiar with very cloudy skies. Uh, and she said there's a lot of weather. You're making rain and you're just in reach. When you in sleep escape me, you're like my Like a load in the dark, what made it special. 
canal busting. Yeah, cloud busting is very interesting. <laughs> it's an interesting song. It's it's partly about clouds. It's also about very controversial, strange man, a psychoanalyst named Wilhelm Reich, who designed a portable machine that he called the cloud buster, that he claimed he could you know produce or avert rain by altering local levels of atmospheric uh, this of energy, this atmospheric energy he called orgone. And in ni- in the 1950s, he was actually hired by a group of farmers in uh, in America, in Maine, County Maine. They hired him in his machine uh, in the hope of ending a, a long summer drought that had threatened the blueberry crop that year. And, of course, you know, like all weather wizards, he claimed success. But, of course, you know, we all know that if you wait long enough, it will either start raining or stop raining. So any weather prediction will eventually come true. But Wilhelm Reich eventually was faced with imprisonment for all kinds of uh, fraud and embezzlement and sexual shenanigans with his patients. Mm. So it's, uh, oh, yeah. the whole thing, yes. <laughs> yeah. So he, no, was, he was looking at the clouds <laughs> through prison bars. Richard, <laughs> we've got to stop. Thank you for... <laughs> Well, I don't know, taking us up to the clouds, helping us to soar above the earth. It's been lovely to spend time up here with you. Let's go out with Joni Mitchell because she's the cloud song of uh, my student days. Canyons everywhere I've looked at clouds that weep But now they only block the sun They rain and snow Joni Mitchell there, and Richard Hamblin was telling us about his book Clouds, Nature and Culture, which was published by Reaction Books.